You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome back to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam on a Friday afternoon today with myself, Raza, and brother Daniel. Over the next two hours, we're going to be talking about, as usual, uh, two topics. In the first half of the program, we're going to talk about global unrest, We're going to talk about the situation of the world that we are in at the moment, the selfishness, the injustice, and the power lust that we see on every end of the the world. And then in the second half of the program, we're going to talk about Remembrance Day. Today, this morning, if you have seen and been following the news in different parts of the country, we remembered... Uh, World War One Armistice Day was um, uh, well, took place in uh, the entire UK as well as uh, I believe in other uh, parts of the world as well. Um, and we're going to talk about that in the second half of the program. As always, zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call if you want to send us a tweet. Do so at Voice of Islam UK, and also if you want to send us a comment on Instagram, you can do so. Voice of Islam UK. Brother Daniel, Assalamu alaikum to you as well. Wa alaikum assalam wabarakatuh. And peace and blessings of Allah be upon you and all the listeners out there. Now, global unrest. For the past years, the world seems to be on a political knife edge as time goes on, tensions seem to keep rising. So why doesn't the looming energy shortages, economic unrest and the rising danger of a nuclear war make world leaders reassess the situation and work towards peace? That is the question that we're asking. So we'd like to invite you to join us as we discuss guidance from His Holiness uh, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya community on the global tensions in the world and how we can, we can and should actually all work together for justice and peace, something that His Holiness has been Highlighting, I believe, since he came uh, into, since he was elected as the Caliph of the Muslim community. Absolutely. For a couple of decades now, he's been talking yeah. about it. He's been warning the world that we are headed into, in a very wrong direction. And, um, uh, you know, nobody believed him at that time. It was uh, as, uh, the idea of uh, uh, the world um, having a global recession mm. or global problems um, or even a war which could affect people globally were were thought of um, as ideas which were very far-fetched. And here we are in 2022, we've had a global pandemic. Most economies are uh, either in trouble or in recession. Inflation is high and um, war is looming large. Unfortunately, and then we had the news of just this morning where we, and I believe you heard it just right now in the news as well at four o'clock. That the Bank of England has warned the UK risk being plunged into the longest recession in 100 years after it pushed up the cost of borrowing to 3% of the biggest single interest rate since 1989. So the UK economy faces a very challenging outlook with a recession that began this summer now expected to last until the middle of 2024, two years, which is the longest ever recession in the history of this country. Absolutely. And and we've had, um, ever since these records were started, we've had quite a few global hmm. seismic events, including the Second World War. Hmm. So this is, uh, you know, this is very significant. I think we are at the precipice of... Um, uh, of um, uh, a globally very dangerous situation, and um, uh, you know, uh, we need to um, 
we need to rethink, uh, take a pause, and uh, and reflect on where we are and, uh, you know, crossroads as we are at. We need to uh, decide where, you know, where do we want to go? Which way do we want to go? Do we want to continue treading on this hmm. dangerous path? And if we do, then um, as, uh, uh, you know, Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed, the fifth head of the Amdiya Muslim community, may Allah be his helper, has been highlighting, talking about warning uh, for the last two decades that uh, it will lead to destruction. So, very gloomy outlook? Yeah, I mean, uh, gloomy, you know, if you look at the, uh, forget about the war aspect, Mm. you just look at the economics of it. Uh, You know, so many people under the poverty line, and and we're talking about, what, the sixth largest economy in the world? Yeah. Uh, We're not talking about a third world country. We're talking about the first world. We're not talking about Africa. Hmm. Uh, We're not talking about, uh, I don't know, the poor, uh, other poor countries of the world. We're talking about the the rich economies, and we're talking about the problems in rich economies. And here we are. We are in the middle of recession. We we have we have uh, you know millions under the poverty line, millions struggling hmm. to pay their daily um, daily bills, millions struggling under the um, yoke of high energy costs, under uh, inflationary pressures, um, and uh, failing to make ends meet. Hmm. So this is uh, you know even from a purely economic standpoint. And and there is no end in sight, by the way. Hmm. You know, they, I, I don't know, you know, if, if a caller calls in and tells us that uh, they know better and they know when the, the Ukrainian war is going to end, uh, then perhaps uh, they know more, more than I do. But, I, you know, they, they, at the moment, I don't see an end to that war. It's a, it's a very stalemate-ish situation. And, uh, well, th- this war, if you keep this out... Let's say, hopefully, inshallah, God willing, it does come to an end. But as you said, what's next? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the last, what, five, ten years, it was one thing after the other, wasn't it? Hmm. So you go all the be- all the way back to, let's go 20 years back, 9-11. What hmm. happened after that? It was a series of events, like one war after the other, one conflict after the other. And then we've come to this point where it's not something, and this was said over and over again, it's not something which is far away. It's not something in a different continent. This is here at home, Europe. Well, you can drive to Ukraine. Mm. How many people have driven to to the border of Ukraine, Russia? Right at our doorstep. Right at our doorstep. Mm. And what's, what's, what's coming next? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, does this escalate into uh, into a worse situation? Uh, I mean, nobody seems to back down when we've done yeah, the programs about exactly. Russia and, and, and the Ukraine war. Hmm. There is no signs of anybody backing down for I'm, the best, for the for the for the good of the world. One hundred percent. Let's talk however, more uh, about um, economics and the economics of uh, of this. Uh, and we have on the line with us uh, Sean Richards, who is an economist and specializes in inflation and monetary economics. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you very, very much for joining us, Mr. Richards. Thank you. It's nice to be on again. Good afternoon. Likewise. Good afternoon to you as well, sir. So, um, uh, the economy, our, our deficit um, at the moment um, is currently running between 40 and 50 billion pounds. Um, our um, UK government uh, gross debt is at 101% 
of gross domestic product. How worrying do you think is this? Um, less than you think, because the actual um, debt numbers are inflated by some of the actions of the Bank of England that don't really count. It's around about $300 billion through various things that they've done that isn't really debt. So it, that number isn't actually that high. But there are issues. Um, I'm more bothered about the fact that the economy struggles to grow mm. because you can afford debt if you can pay it, can't you? That's basically how it works. Yeah. And the problem that we have is that I mean, I heard your discussion before, and you went back 20 years. Well, there was a time in that where the economy grew quite well. But since the credit crunch, we have mm. sort of little bursts of growth. Mm. But then it goes away, so there's nothing sustained. And that's the problem. And like, um, the other side of the coin is that people like the idea of furlough payments for COVID and things like that. But that did add to the deficit and the debt. And... That's one of the reasons why we now are where we are. And there's questions everywhere you look, because if you look on the personal side, people are suffering from inflation. Mm. So their sort of real budgets have been cut. And that goes pretty much wherever you look, because it's the same for businesses. Um, I was looking at the GDP numbers earlier, and if you look at manufacturing and some of the breakdown, it's places like metal manufacturer and chemicals that have been hit, why is that? Well, they're the big energy users. Mm. Why has that happened? Because it's now so expensive. Mm. So that there's quite a few sort of log jams in the way at the minute, and, and that's why basically over the... Now, there's always margins of errors for these sort of things, but over the last six months, the economy hasn't grown at all. And if you add to that, uh, uh, you know, maybe a slightly hypothetical situation, so if... The economy remains in re- in recession, and if there is another uh, global problem, a major crisis in the world, um, akin to maybe I don't know another pandemic or or another bigger war, do governments, going back to your earlier point, have the capacity anymore to 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 spend money uh, to print money as they did during COVID? Well, I think the question more this time around is that you see governments in truth, always lie in that situation. They give money away and they imply that it's free. Well, it's not, Mm. because later you tend to get inflation, like we're seeing now, which means it's expensive. Now, there's a time lag, usually of a couple of years, that allows them, because they try not to tell the truth and they try and avoid saying this is what happens. Correct. Um, It's become more complicated this time around because of the Ukraine war and the energy thing, which made it worse. Mm -hmm. But we did have inflation of 5 or 6% before all that happened. So there was a problem. And and that's where we stand. So we could do it again. And then maybe, you know, we go back into inflation. Then we find that the Bank of England raising interest rates. Only last week, it raised them to 3%. So there's an element of sort of several hammers hitting you all at the same time. That's the problem. Um, I'm sure I said when I went on before that the, one of the problems we have right now is is that the Bank of England should have acted earlier. It should have been doing this last year. Then at least one of the things would have been in play. Rather than now, they're sort of putting their foot on the brake when already things are difficult. Mm. But if I can sort of ask this question slightly differently. Um, so, you know, if you look across the Atlantic, US, being the, US dollar being the reserve currency of the world, they do have this capacity to 
uh, to have unlimited um, budget deficit, unlimited debt, um, and they can print whatever they want. Um, uh, UK probably doesn't. So would it? How dangerous is that? Uh, are we then, you know, one crisis away, one one other pandemic away from from really really dire circumstances? Well, look, I see, I think of it another way because of the we rightly say that US currency has the reserve uh, role, and people are always saying that's about to end. Actually, this year it's been stronger than ever. Mm. What do I mean? Well, the strength of the US dollars put a lot of pressure exactly. on other countries. It's a it's a safe haven now. Pre- you know, we had the bit in the UK when the pound went down to 103 or wherever. We were under pressure. Um, I followed Japan a lot because I worked out there. The Bank of Japan started intervening at the end of September and then again because the yen went to 150. That, for them, applied pressure. Uh, if you look at India, for example, um, the Reserve Bank of India tried to hold 80 rupees to the dollar because it had fallen so much that it went to 82. That wasn't working. Yeah. Um so the dollar's role this year it actually applied pressure on everyone. Mm-hmm. It's pushed the euro below parity everywhere you look, virtually. And that's turned a further screw on everyone. Why? Because so many of the things we go out and buy are in dollars. I don't mean in the shops, but the basics behind it, if they buy oil for it, if they buy cotton, if they buy wheat, whatever, is a dollar price. So it makes it more expensive. And that's the way this, that's why this year... Um, the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, until now has been the main player. Because by dealing with things in America, or at least it thinks so, and raising interest rates to just under 4%, it's turned the screw more on everyone else in the world by the strength in the dollar. And that's been the story of this year. Now, could they borrow forever? And remember, other countries borrow in dollars as well mm. because of the strength of the dollar. And so, you know, it is... Also, a, a more complicated question. Can they borrow more? Probably. Hmm. There's enormous demand for dollars, so they could... Su- but um, as to how oh, we could borrow more, but then you see you've got to pay it back. It was very easy in the COVID times because the Bank of England and the other central banks stepped in, could borrow very, very cheaply. I follow the UK um, 10-year yield as a benchmark. Maybe the other countries did it. That went below half a percent. Correct. But it's and more like three and a half now. Absolutely, Sean. And and we've seen recently what what actually happens politically if you if you do try to. I think the markets are very jittery now. We've seen what happened to Liz, mm. Liz Truss when she did try to borrow more. So um, I guess there is there there is there are concerns in the market already around the size of our debt and um, um, and the weakness of uh, economic fundamentals. I, th- I think to some extent, although it was also true that she tried to do too much in one go and the whole thing of sort of that and then people looked at it and went, whoa. You know, traders and that sort of thing are human and psychology comes in here. And I mean, people looked at it and thought, that's too much. Then there was a panic. Then it turned out, and here's a thing that is a problem going forward. So many institutions got used to interest rates being effectively zero. I know literally in the UK they got only got down to 0.1, but approximately zero. And they found it very hard for them. Anything like longer-term savings, pension funds, that's what caused part of the Liz Trust panic. And, and to move on to something else that's in play at the minute, I don't know how many listeners have followed to what's happened to the crypto world this year. <laughs> um, 
there's no, uh, excuse me, this week, or I started last Friday, and um, places like exchanges have come under real pressure. So there's losses there. We don't know how much or who it is, but we know there have been some. And then Bitcoin as well. So that's created pressure again for those that have invested in that. <coughs> so it, it's a complicated picture, hmm. you know. And, and here's, here's an irony of life for you. Those in the Bitcoin world thought it was great because they wanted to avoid regulation mm. and keep out of governments. I can understand that. Most people can. Mm. Now they're in trouble. <laughs> they want regulation and governments to step in. <laughs> and I'm afraid it's so often like that. Yeah. Mm. Sean, I want to ask you about the public sector, which is the biggest spend for the government, uh, in which the Chancellor may decide to limit 2% rise, making it almost certain that NHS workers, police and teachers will once again you know, suffer a real-terms pay cut given the elevated levels of inflation that we just spoke about. Do you think that this will restrict the public spending power driving the economy into depression, maybe? That's quite possible because I mean, one of the um, themes of my work is the fact that real wages, as in ones after inflation, are really struggling right now. Um, I looked at the numbers in the euro example. There was some, there was some new work from the Central Bank of Ireland this week, and they're falling roughly by five percent a year, and that's roughly true here. If the government actually gets away with a two percent rise in the public sector, then with inflation at ten percent or more, then it'll be worse for them, won't it? So it'll be eight, nine, ten percent, and they'll have to put a squeeze on the economy. So that, I think, overall is a bad thing. And it's where economic policy gets itself in a mess because people want to avoid a wage price spiral because if everything just keeps going up, you entrench the inflation. But on the other hand, you've got to be very careful because surely you'd protect the lowest paid workers, wouldn't you? Not mm. punish them. True. Lastly, from my side, what, what the, the common average Joe, what would you recommend what would what what would you tell them or him for the next two years this was something that i've been hearing in the news two years recession how bad how extreme how worried should they be or should we be i think the thing is that you can sort of talk yourself into fear can't you yeah I think one should be careful about that. I think the Bank of England made a mistake on that front last week because they put forecasts out. Well, step one, they're not actually very good at forecasting. In fact, they're dreadful <laughs> at it. I mean, they, they got today's numbers wrong last week and by a reasonable margin. It was, it was only eight days past. Um, so you can talk yourself into a thing. So my message would be that there are problems. not going to be easy. We're probably in for more of a spell, like I just said, where there's no growth at all. Hmm. And we need to try and sort of dig our way out of it a bit. I'm, I'm not really sure, as I was just explaining, that squeezing the wages of the lower paid is going to help and probably make it worse. And it certainly give them a hard time. Um, so I think we need from government and places a sort of nuanced response. Spending in some areas, trying to cut back where they can. And also, I think we need to have a good long think about where we do get some economic growth from and what we want to do, because a lot of pressure, say like part of the energy problem is because we've gone for things like renewables. Now people who agree, disagree about how much we need renewables, but the fact is it's put the system under pressure, and now 
we got unlucky with the system under pressure with the problems with Russia that was a gas supplier. So it's now expensive and the squeeze is on. So we need to think. I mean, I've never been an enormous fan of nuclear power. Personally, I think there are risks. But we haven't built one, a nuclear power station, for so long hmm. that we're way short in that area. And it's that sort of thing, long-term planning. My father used to say that what we needed for things like that was somebody away from politicians that could make decisions, you know, over 25 years or 30 <laughs> years, not ones that are invariably at the end of their nose, which is how they usually operate, isn't it? Exactly that, Sean. So, you know, if I can take that argument further. So you talked about nuclear energy. So the the one that's uh, currently being built, I think, is uh, is <laughs> Chinese are helping us build, it, build that. And we don't like the Chinese. So... Uh, <laughs> Where do we go with that? We, 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 well, we've already declared them as the number one enemy, uh, despite not having fought a war with them ever. But uh, there are, you know, there's issues with Taiwan and things like that, and it, it's a it's a complex issue, isn't it? Because we recently made in a lot. It's political, Taiwan, right? Yes. Yeah. With Australia, so there's that element. But there are concerns about it. But then you see, if you look at the other side, like the French have nuclear technology. Actually, it's going very badly at the minute. Yeah. The one that they're building is way over cost and way out of date. The ones that they have, many of them are not working. So I'm not sure, personally, I'd be rushing to use theirs either. So what other options so, uh, then? Going to Russia? <laughs> well, <laughs> that won't happen. <laughs> yeah, I read a book. I mean, this is something that some of the listeners may be too young for, but I remember Chernobyl, and I remember reading yeah. a book on that. <laughs> Me too. On, uh, Rus- I'm even less keen on Russian technology. But there are places like Canada and so on that seem to have things that have been successful. Right. Okay. You know. um, what impact do you think... Um, this energy price gap removal as the government, the Chancellor, the Prime Minister have suggested in April going to have on um, the common man, you think? Well, it depends, A, what they replace it with. I think something will be coming. I doubt it will be as comprehensive as that, but something. And also, you know, I guess, um, excuse me, it depends quite a lot on the weather. So far this winter we've been lucky. And in general, gas and electricity prices have come lower mm. because it's been mild. It's also, we've been lucky recently, it's been quite windy so that we've had some power from that route. Um, and, and what we don't need, you know, is a cold January or something like that. Particularly, we don't want cold still days. So that we'll only really find out then because, as I was explaining before, we have left ourselves exposed if you would, what advice would you give to to the government right now, given the the size of our budget deficit and our public debt, um, and given um, that we've already given uh, to the public these um, some of these benefits around price caps? What what advice would you give to the chancellor right now around whether or not to remove the price cap in April? Well, in terms of general policy, I think next week, if they cut, that'll be a mistake. I understand there's a deficit, but we also need to try and get the economy growing. Hmm. I think that there's a real irony, because Liz Truss and Quasi Quartin overplayed their hand, and that became a mess. But there were some kernels of good ideas in their thing, in that they were trying to get some economic growth. So in the end, that's what decides this, mostly. 
if people believe your economy is going to grow, then you don't end up in that situation. If you go under the what seems to be being suggested by um, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak, the, tr- the danger is that you end up in the downward spiral. You cut, the economy shrinks, you think you can't afford that, you cut again. That's the sort of saga that was imposed in Greece, in the Greek saga in 2011-12 and that. And that led to quite a disaster. So my suggestion would be to keep helping. I know it's against the vein of um, reducing the debt in the short term, but sometimes I think you have to because, you see, we're in a situation, now this is quite awkward, where where sometimes there isn't a nice choice. (laughs) They're merely less bad. Devil in the deep blue sea. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. In economics, the formal phrase for it is the theory of the second best. Sometimes it's the third best or fourth best you end up with, but you know that you do the best you can rather than what you necessarily like to do. Do you think uh, taxing the oil companies, the big oil companies, is a good idea? Well, there are elements of maybe where we could, and we certainly do. You see, the issue with that, it, this all gets tied up in politics, which I try and avoid, is that they have losses to set against it from 2020 when there was that spell. I don't know if people remember, but certainly um, Shell Oil and things like that went negative in price. Hmm. So there were big losses then, and they can set against it. And the trouble is with running around taxing firms that are international is that they can leave, and then you're worse off. So that sort of thing I think you'd be careful of. I think the area that I'd look at would be around the thing of renewables. We're told we're cheap, but the electricity from them is expensive. So where's the money going? Mm -hmm. So I think there is a gap there where maybe we could look at that. But perhaps by the route of taking the electricity from that more cheaply, get the gain that way. Right. You know, because some of these things don't add up. We're rushing around with oil. Well, what about the other bits? Right, absolutely. Right, thank you very much, Sean. Um, Very good to talk to you. Thank you for sparing time for us. Um, uh, Lovely to have you on the program and have a great rest of the evening and a weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was Sean Richards, who is an economist and specializes in inflation and monetary economics, uh, giving us his take on uh, the current state of affairs. Now, in addition to the economic crisis, what we've been talking about, households across the UK are expected to unfortunately face another challenge this winter. You have been hearing it. You have been affected by it. The price of energy is increasing while the UK is facing a cost of living crisis. Well, the question is, why is this occurring? The first signs of an energy crisis occurred late 2021 when restrictions from the COVID-19 pandemic started to lift. During the pandemic, many people, you remember that, did not, didn't drive our cars. And thus, many people were not filling up their cars with petrol as the restrictions eased. The demand for fuel increased. However, suppliers were not prepared for this sudden increase in demand. The huge... Oh, do you still remember those queues at the at the oh, petrol yeah, stations? Yeah, oh my goodness! Yeah. Wasn't that Armageddon? It's <laughs> <laughs> like oh my god! I'm, yeah, I pushed my luck in those days for quite some time, just going further yes, and further I mean, down. No, I, I I didn't bother. No, <laughs> I used to go late at night or or you know uh, yeah. early in the morning or no, whatever. That, yeah. That's that's one thing. Yeah, so. All of this led to an increase in prices because of the law of demand. Mm. And as demand goes up, we know prices go up as well. And then think back to, what was it, February this year, 
in the midst of all came the Russia-Ukraine war. And many Western countries, including the UK, simply banned Russian coal and oil imports. And June was the first month on record that the UK did not import any fuel from Russia, which is traditionally one of its major suppliers. And there is now a supply issue, again, driving up fuel prices, leading to an increase in energy bills, etc., etc. So for a typical household, one that uses 12,000 kilowatt hours uh, of gas a year and 2,900 kilowatt hours of electricity a year, this means an annual bill will cost £3,549 a year. Uh, while it was last winter, it was £1,277 a year. You know, this begs wow. the question that uh, shouldn't we really pick our battles? We are in the middle of a recession. We we have a huge inflation crisis. Our our deficit and, uh, and debts are at record highs. And here we are um, supporting a war. Um, you know, we talk about politics often, but isn't it time? You, you know, what, what have we? What is the result? What is the result of a of a war? How do you, how do you bring about an end to a war? How did the the Afghan war end, yeah. for example? You know, at the end of the day, people have to sit around a table and discuss, mediate a solution, right? Why should we not do that now? Given that we've already seen that there is a stalemate. Yeah. You know, whatever, what are we expecting Ukraine to do, despite the billions of dollars um, that um, the world is pumping into into Ukraine to give them arms and whatnot? So there's a proxy war going on between yeah. West and and um, uh, and the U.S. Um, and the Russians. But uh, you know, shouldn't we be slightly wiser when people are are, are choosing between eating and heating and 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 whatnot? Inflation is high. We shouldn't we be more. Um, what's the word? Um, um, <laughs> yeah. Shouldn't we make better choices here? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah should be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. I then. think. See, this is this is probably where where the difference comes in. Then I'm. I mean, a lot of people have said when Rishi Sunak, for example, came into power. What what does he know about? what the common person has to go through on a da- on a daily basis if you have if you come from money with 700 plus million um uh pounds worth i don't know that's that's the thing and uh, you're absolutely right i mean for for some people it might be very easy for 9 months you've been putting billions and billions of of dollars and pounds into this war for 9 months yeah. how how long is this going to go if you keep in mind that for the next 2 years we're going to be in a recession. We're going to have to suffer. Um, and I mean, nobody's downplaying the fact of, of, of or the effects of this war shouldn't happen anywhere. But again, the double standard debate comes into play. Yeah, I mean, when, 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 when there's a other food places crisis, like Syria when, or you know Afghanistan, when it happened there, one hundred percent. Where was the nine month support there? I, exactly, exactly. And and here we are. Lack we want justice, to yeah. we want to keep on pumping billions into a war when you know many of those billions our own people need here yeah. um, uh, for um, uh, just to meet their. Um, um, basic requirements. The basic requirements, food. And and on the subject of food, let's let's talk to uh, Shona Gudi, who is the policy research manager at the Food Foundation. 
Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you very much, Shona, for joining us. Did I pronounce your last name right? Uh, close, Gaudi. Gaudi. Okay. Okay. I'm. I beg your pardon. Thank you. That's quite all right. <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, yeah, how is the Food Foundation helping in the current current crisis? Um, so we're doing um, a lot of work at the moment, trying to produce evidence about the scale of the problem of um, the cost of living crisis and how that's affecting people's ability to buy food. Um, so one of the things we do is running um, surveys to try and measure um, to try and measure the levels of food insecurity or food poverty that we're seeing. Um, so we ran our last survey in September. Um, and we found that 18% of all households, so nearly one in five households, experienced food poverty in September. Um, so that means they'd either had to cut down on the amount of food they're eating, or in some cases, go whole days without food just because they couldn't afford or get the food that they need. Um, and that is double what we were seeing at the start of this year. So the problem has escalated really rapidly. Hmm. Um, we're also seeing that in households with children, they're at much higher risk of um, food poverty. So at the moment, we're doing a lot of work around trying to campaign to um, ensure that children are getting the food that they need um, during this cost of living crisis. And one of the big campaigns that we've been leading on recently um, is called the Feed the Future campaign. And we've been calling for um, the expansion of the free school meal scheme to all children on universal credit, um, because currently there's 800,000 children who are living in poverty um, but aren't eligible for free school meals because yeah. the criteria are so strict. And, and so that's been one of our really main areas of focus at the moment. Now, Shauna, we've spoken over the course of the last couple of weeks and months to so many um, charities and organizations who are doing such a great job in helping the people of the UK cope with this uh, rising food costs. But certainly that's probably not going to cut it. I want to ask you, what would you like to see the government do in the next autumn and the next week's autumn budget statement to help families struggling with the rising uh, cost of food and especially those affected the most, you know, the children and and those families that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the scale of the cost of living crisis has gotten so severe that government really are going to need to take some serious action in the budget next week to to address the problem um, and we need kind of long-term systemic solutions rather than sort of sticking plasters um, and yeah I mean the levels of food poverty and food prices are expected to increase <coughs> in the coming months so it's really critical that the action is taken now to prevent that from from happening um, so I think one of the major things in the budget next week that um, a lot of a lot of different people and organizations are calling for is for government to increase um, benefits in line with inflation um, in order to help people on benefits be able to cope with the rising prices that we're seeing. Um, so in our surveys, we found that people, uh, households in receipt of universal credit, um, over half of them were experiencing food poverty, so such high levels. Um, so that's a group where we really need to be targeting support at. Um, and so by increasing benefits in line with inflation, that can help with food poverty because food is one of the most flexible areas of household spending. And it's one of the first places that families try to make savings when money is tight and try and cut down. 
And so by increasing that overall household income through benefits, it can really make a real difference. Um, I think the other thing, I mean, as I've already said, we're um, campaigning for free school meals to be Mm. expanded for all those on universal credit, which can make um, a really big difference as well. So, um, yeah, as I said, the threshold to to get those at the moment is incredibly low. So Mm. a household has to be earning less than £7,400 a year to get it, which is an incredibly low threshold and is leaving loads of children in poverty missing out. And so, um, you know, that causes a lot of stress and anxiety for parents at the moment who are doing so much to try and help their children be able to eat well and just can't because of the the cost and so expanding free school meals would make a real difference to guaranteeing those children at least one hot nutritious meal a day at school so how are you coping with you know to 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 meet that demand and and food banks in general across across the country yeah and so we aren't a food bank so we don't directly give out yeah sorry about about food but um for food banks i think they are really struggling at the moment. I mean, food bank workers and volunteers do such a fantastic job and they work incredibly hard to to try and help people. But I think the level of demand that they're seeing is just too high for them to be able to cope with. And, you know, they have rising running costs and energy bills that they have to pay as well. And they're getting less donations as well because, um, you know, people are donating less because they're having to tighten up their spending. Um, so, you know, we're hearing stories about food banks running out of supplies within 20 minutes of opening and, um, you know, food banks are having queues around the corner before they even open. Um, so the scale of demand is just got unmanageable for them. Um, and the Trussell Trust, um, which is the largest network of food banks in the UK, they released new figures yesterday saying they've given out 1.3 million parcels in the last six months. Uh, mm. which is a huge number, but it's still much less than the number of people we know are experiencing food poverty. So it doesn't seem like food banks are managing to to cater to everyone who's not getting enough food at the moment. Um, and food banks are also, because they're mostly reliant on donations, that means that um, they can't always provide food that's going to give people all the nutrition they need in their diet mm. and give them a healthy diet. And they also can't cater to like medical needs so if people have food allergies or they can't always provide culturally appropriate foods. Um, there's also a big stigma associated with food banks that puts a lot of people off from accessing them. So they're really not um, a sort of long-term solution to food poverty. So instead, we need government to be making these changes mm. and strengthening the benefits system and strengthening the um, food schemes for children to sort of um, prevent people from getting to the place where they need to be accessing a food bank. Hmm. Um, so you spoke about these free school meals. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the, you know, the nutritional value or the menu itself. I know with my son's school, you know, thank God it's 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 all right. I mean, they send us the menu every uh, every year, every uh, in the beginning of the term, and then if there's any changes, they let us know. But what I've noticed is that in some other schools, uh, you have many staple food items like fish, for example, disappearing from the school menu um, or being limited when it comes to fruit and veg. How important is it to keep? that nutritional value of the free school meals high? 
Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm glad your son's school is managing to, to maintain a good quality of food. And I think there's lots of schools that are still managing. His son goes um, to a very privileged school. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know that not everyone no. is so lucky, but um, it's very... I think it is a very difficult time for school caterers because, you know, rising food prices are affecting them as well. They're also experiencing kind of increased utility costs and staffing costs. Um, and I think a lot of them are really doing the best they can to try and maintain the standards of the food that they're providing. Because I think also a lot of them really recognise the importance of the job they do in providing children with nutritional food. And so they're, you know, working hard to try and deliver that. Um but I mean, it is so important because for some children, especially those on preschool meals, that school lunch might be their only hot, nutritious meal of the day. So it really is vital that it's of high nutritional value. Um, and the government do have school food standards that schools should be following to try and ensure that that, that, that happens. Um, what's quite interesting as well is that um, expanding preschool meals could actually help with the issue of um, schools being able to continue to provide a high quality of food because the economy of scale that's generated from serving food to more children um, means that um, so caterers can provide food at better value for the money because of the higher volumes of meals that would be provided and that can actually help make the school meal system more financially viable so I mean that's just another reason why we're strongly urging government to expand preschool meals as well so. Right um, Shona Thank you so very much for joining us. It was uh, such a pleasure and a delight to speak to you um, on a Friday afternoon. Have a lovely rest of the day and a lovely weekend ahead. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Excellent. So that was uh, Shona Gaudi, who is the Policy Research Manager at the Food Foundation, talking to us about uh, inflation, food and people's worries and what uh, is being done about uh, about that. Um, l- let me ask you a question, Imam um, Imam Raza here. So, uh, you know, this uh, the argument for the Ukraine war uh, in the West is that Russia is the aggressor. Mm. We have taken a principled stand and we want to teach them a lesson. Mm-hmm. Right. So your son goes to school. Mm. If I can, you know, uh, perhaps draw, a, I wouldn't say an analogy, but, you know, an, an example. So if, son, if, if your son aggresses against another child. Mm-hmm. Um, or let me put it another way. If if somebody else aggresses against your son and um, there's a, that of course becomes a big issue. Let's say there is, there is, I don't know, uh, let's make it bigger. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's add some drama. There is racism involved. There's bullying involved. Mm. You know, all, all the bad words yes. uh, <laughs> these days. So, uh, uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty bad situation. Uh, what, what, what would be the right thing to do under those circumstances so your son has been aggressed against yeah, yeah. he is um he is on the right and the other side is obviously wrong and let's say the headmaster has left it to you mm-hmm. to decide what happens to the other child well do they expel him do they bomb him do mm-hmm. they <laughs> what happens to the other party what would you do of course, I think you go and talk to the parents. Hmm. Uh, first of all, you talk. Uh, you talk. Yeah, that, that's what it is. You right. you sit down, you talk, you look at the hmm. problems, and then you deal you deal with the issues and go to the to the grassroots level. Hmm. Um, what one thing that I've learned at the very beginning of when I went to the missionary school, I was asked a question 
some somewhat along these lines that if you are sent to a country, if you're sent to um, a local community and you see that there is a group of youngsters who are involved in all sorts of vices, you know, you're talking about alcohol, you're talking about right. anything that you can think of. Yeah, drugs, whatever. What, yeah. what, what would you do? Would you cut off? Would you stop talking to them? Or mm. what would you do? And now, in that moment, I was one of those youths. I remember that how uh, you felt, right? If you didn't really walk the the walk, right? So walk that line. Mm. So I said to to to, to the board simply. I mean, I I wouldn't stop talking to them. Mm. Um, I would go to to them, ask them, find out what led them, what made them go this way not 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 punish them or not teach punish them a them. what 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 is that going to do yeah. if you punish them you are going to drive them away even further exactly so one of the people on that board was a senior missionary at that time as well he said that's that's absolutely right hate the the crime not the criminal so if you want to have some results if i was to punish that child i am going to leave a permanent scar in that brain, in that brain of that child. And if he doesn't do it to my son, I am sure he's going to do it to someone else's son. Mm. And I'm not sure how that answers the question of Ukraine and Russia, but it all comes down to, to talking. To de-escalate. To de-escalate. We're not helping, yeah. in my opinion. See, again, this is, this is us. We're not helping in funding one side mm. and do not not bringing the other side to the table. If you look at the Holy Quran, this is what the Holy Quran says, that if you have two parties fighting with each other, and the Holy Quran it talks about two parties of believers, mm. right? But I, I tend to yeah. think, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're both Christian nations. Sure. They, they are believers in my eyes. Absolutely. So if both of them are fighting, then it's your job to mediate between them. Mm. If one party then um, uh, de-escalates, or if, if one party uh, transgresses, then it's the job of the community of the of the of the rest of the believers, the committee of nations, exactly to to address that issue mm. and bring them back to to peace. Mm. But we are not seeing that, mm. right? So we see the opposite of that. It's it's quite and, and 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 the you know and we think that we are invincible when we are not. We are hurting. No Our people are hurting. Yeah, uh, and everybody uh, around the globe are hurting uh, and. Uh, and yet there seems to be no effort at all uh, uh, to de-escalate the situation. And I think, look, as, as, as much as we want to help and we should help as a community, as a world community, as a world, uh, we should be helping people in need. But what I'm seeing, if you go online, you will see this in the purest form whatsoever. Yes, on the streets, face-to-face, people will be a bit hesitant to talk about this. But if you go online, you will see how that support for Ukraine in the beginning, which was so strong, how that support is slowly, slowly vanishing. Mm. Why? Because at the end of the day, ultimately, that's how we are. That's how people are. There we, is fatigue. If yeah. There is fatigue. Yeah. I am suffering mm. here in this country, in other countries. I mean, all, all of Europe is the same situation. If I talk mm. to my friends in Germany, it's pretty much the same. If you mm. talk to someone in France, the situation is similar. So... We are, as you said, giving all that money, billions and billions and billions of dollars for, I believe, okay, admit, for a good cause. Mm-hmm. To, for, for a principal cause. For a principal cause, yeah, for a principal cause, of yeah. course. 
um, to 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 that one country. But again, if the people at home are suffering, yeah. you're not helping that cause. You're not strengthening you're any cause, any cause whatsoever. So people are saying this now online for sure. I've I've mm. read it myself. I mean, you just have to go on Twitter for five minutes mm. and you'll find at least fifty comments. Um, uh, around I mean, that. it's it's great to take principal stands and 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 what, but it have to be just, isn't it? But it, 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 and and absolutely just and and that's right. But you know, when you when you know that that's hurting you and 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 there could be more, uh, there could be other more pragmatic solutions to the problem. Why why are we not exercising those? That that's that's a good question. And where does it start? It starts at the top. Yeah, exactly. It starts at the top, and I think, um, I, I think uh, the, the top in this case. I mean, this is primarily a war between United States and Russia. Hmm. Uh, Europe is is supporting the U.S. cause. Uh, uh, President Biden has been uh, 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 made his intentions clear about his anti-Russia and anti-China stand even be- even before he was inaugurated. Hmm. So I think there's little doubt in the fact that this is really his war that we are fighting. Yeah. And we will see how that turns out because um, as far as the midterms are concerned, they, 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 that was a bit surprised, wasn't it? Oh, now, for, yeah. moving on. Um, in his book, Islam's Response to Contemporary Issues, His Holiness, Hazem Ezzat the fourth successor of the Promised Messiah, may Allah have mercy on his soul, he noted that Islam establishes minimum rights in the form of four-point charter by defining the basic needs which a state should procure, food, clothing, water, and shelter. Now, governments have a national responsibility to fulfill the basic needs of each member of society, and it's, it's the responsibility of governments to put in place social security, infrastructure, and systems that would facilitate food accessibility, particularly for the poverty-stricken citizens. In the economic sphere, the basic concept in Islam is that absolute ownership of everything belongs to God alone, as we find in chapter 2, verse 108. Man is God's vicegerent on earth, and God has subjected to man's service. And in chapter 51, verse 20, it says, In their wealth they acknowledge the rights of those who asked and of those who could not. And the object of the Islamic economic system is to secure the widest and most beneficent distribution of wealth through institutions set up by it and through moral exhortation. Wealth must remain in constant circulation among all sections of the community and should not become the monopoly of the rich. The current caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, Hazrat Mizam Masood Ahmed, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, he said that now as the economic state of the world worsens and and people's financial condition becomes strained, some people may think that they should focus on their own needs and tighten their giving hands. In such circumstances, we should remember, remember those in greater need than us and help and support them as much as possible. When we were talking to Shana Gaudi, when she was talking about these food banks, one thing that I have to say is, um, so we volunteer at a local food bank in, in, in the Croydon area. And over the years the the demand has grown you mm. wouldn't even believe it mm. i mean the line was always long on sunday nights uh, they go and 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 the homeless people they they come there and you have these uh packages so mm. that includes tinned food that includes uh, toiletries etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. you always had like you know, 40 50 people uh coming on that sunday night and it was how do i say that 
you you could tell the 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 group of people that would come mm-hmm. but nowadays i've seen the last time i went it's across the board right. some people if you were to see them on the street you would not believe mm-hmm. that they are in need mm-hmm. of uh, food bank supplies mm-hmm. but they are but at the same time i've also seen that people are donating people are charitable people are opening their hearts sure. and the the amount of donations flooding in on that sunday night i mean you have loads and loads and loads of items well, british people are charitable of so there's course, little yeah. doubt about that so we've always been charitable you know even even when it uh, has come to other people other nations or even other continents needing our help so that's i think that's uh that is a big feature of uh w- one of the great things about this uh this society but yeah the what is really worrying is that uh more and more, more people now yeah. in in our own society need the need this sort of help and the queues are getting longer now we're going to finish off with a clip of his holiness uh in which he uh addressed about the nuclear uh, threat that the world is facing and this is from a peace symposium in 2009 let's have a listen i've expressed my view on many occasions that the leaders of the of uh, some of the nuclear powers are trigger happy and appear not to appreciate the truly grave consequences of nuclear warfare not only do such weapons have the power to annihilate the countries targeted by uh, targeted but also have the potential to destroy the peace and stability of the entire world thus it is imperative that nations and their leaders do not focus only on their own national interests but consider what is best for the world at large dialogue with other nations and communities is vital and each party should work together with a spirit of tolerance and with the shared objective of developing true and sustainable peace in the world and that's exactly what we have been saying that it's our common um, goal it's our shared responsibility to make sure that we do leave a world behind for the next generation and to take care of this is is our shared responsibility. We're going to go to the five o'clock news and then we'll be back after that speaking about Remembrance Day celebrated across the Commonwealth today this morning. You're listening to The Draft Time Show here at the five o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome back to The Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Uh, today with myself, Raza, and Brother Daniel, we uh, we're talking about global unrest and uh, the world being on a political knife edge in the first half of the program. Um, and we are going to move on to Remembrance Day. But just before that, I think it was very important um, to mention just one more thing that uh, there was a clip that we had from His Holiness um the current caliph of the Amdi Muslim community has Ahmed Ahmedullah strength in his hand and there was an address that he delivered in Singapore during his far east tour in 2013 
which um, talks about some of the issues that we have just spoken about in the first half of the program. So we want to play that, and then, uh, as promised, we're going to move on to the Remembrance Day. Let's see what His Holiness had to say. Islam says that the country's resources form the national wealth, and so they should be used to serve every class and every segment of society. The wealth of a nation should be used to ensure that every member of society has access to certain essential facilities. For example, Islam teaches that each and every child, no matter his or her background, should be provided a proper education so that they can develop into skilled and truly beneficial members of society. Similarly, there are many other facilities that should be provided equally across the board. Although present-day systems advocate the provision of these facilities, they do not, to the extent Islamic teachings, teachings state. Further, Islam moves another step forward by stating that you should not only help yourselves, but you should also care for your neighbors. Thus, countries should utilize their wealth to serve and benefit their neighboring countries as well. Where a country is in need or deprived in any way, then it is the duty of their neighbor to assist them. Indeed, Islam advocates that the circle of benefiting others should continue to expand so nations should not only seek to help their immediate neighbors, but should also use their resources to assist other poor and deprived nations across the world. Another point I should mention is that Allah the Almighty has granted different resources and forms of wealth to different countries. Therefore, if one country does not possess the knowledge to extract or facilitate the use of its own wealth, then those nations that have such knowledge and skills should assist them. Such help should be administered in a selfless manner without a desire to fulfill vested interests. Alliances or friendships with particular nations should not be a determining factor in deciding whether to assist other countries. Favoritism of any kind should not occur. Rather, the goal should be to help others stand on their own two feet. Unjust conditions should not be placed whereby countries are not helped until they fulfill certain demands or until they agree to establish particular relations with third-party countries. Nor should the countries who are providing technological assistance place such onerous conditions. That means the country receiving help is unable to derive full benefit from its own resources. 
and nor should such conditions be placed that result in the assisting nation receiving greater benefit from the resources of the other country. Such unjust acts are all against the teachings of Islam and lead to restlessness, to develop and ferment. If such a state of affairs occurs, then a time will surely come when the anxiety and sense of injustice will lead to open enmities and hatred rising above the surface. If this is allowed to happen, it will lead to the destruction of peace, both in the prospective country, uh, in the respective country, and also at an international level. Certainly, this is extreme, uh, exactly what we are witnessing in the world today. It should be remembered that if the affluent classes utilize their wealth in a proper and fair manner, then the gap between the rich and the poor would not be anywhere near as wide as it is today. On international level, if all the wealth and aid used to assist poorer nations was distributed in an appropriate way, then we would not see inequality and friction between nations increasing as it is today. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Alright, Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome back. You were just listening to uh, an address of His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current Caliph of the Yemeni Muslim community. May Allah strengthen his hand, which he delivered in 2013 in Singapore. Now, we always, uh, every day, we have a question that we ask you on our opinion polls on Instagram. And today, we are asking you that which countries should be leading the way in creating world peace? There's a few replies that we have received, uh, UK and America. Mm -hmm. And then we have another one from uh, another brother who said New Zealand. Can you imagine New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, interesting. Very, very interesting indeed, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> With that, swiftly, we're going to move on <laughs> to the second topic for today. This morning, you have probably witnessed it and seen it in the news. You had the national um, celebration or the memorial of uh, Armistice Day celebrating this morning across the country and I believe in Canada as well. A mere hundred years ago in 104 years ago in 1918, when the clock struck 11 on the 11th day of the 11th month, the world stood still. What began with the assassination of the Archduke of an heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the summer of 1914, escalated into the biggest bloodbath the world had witnessed up to that date. And today is a very important day for most of the world uh, because today marks the end of the First World War 
And this day is widely known as Armistice Day or Remembrance Day. So today, um, this is something that we want to talk about uh, in the next half of the program, the Amity Muslim community. You know, in, uh, uh, what was it? At the beginning of November, when the Poppy Appeal starts, uh, end of October. Uh, end of October. Um, the Amity Muslim community, and this is something that the Elders Association yeah. has basically taken up upon themselves to for a number uh, of years uh, now. For a number of years now, to assist and to partner up with the Royal British Legion, and do some poppy appeals and sell across the country, and uh, it's received with mixed emotions. Um, from what I've heard, I've seen as well. A lot of people are very appreciative, but then it also comes to some people who don't really understand why there is a Muslim guy standing on the other side of the stall and selling puppies. Yeah, I think that that's that's part of the reason why you know the the community has and the Muslim community has sort of sort of stepped up to do this um, uh, with the Royal British Legion because uh, the Royal British Legion was. Um, you know they didn't have any uh, sort of uh, how should i put it asian or, uh, mm. or or brown supporters if i if i can put it that way yeah. and um, um the community and uh, the british legion sat together and and the community said yeah well, we we will volunteer we we want to uh, support a good cause and this is about helping veterans of war and their families um and whatnot in the entire commonwealth not just in the uk yeah. so it is a very very good cause and uh, which is why the Ahmadiyya Muslim Elders Association does this year in, year out for a number of years now. So um, members of the Elders Association would stand at uh, train stations and streets and uh, poppy stalls uh, all across the country and they would um, collect money. So uh, and on the whole, I would say that uh, the uh, the feedback has been quite positive. Yes, there are, there's always the odd incident. Yeah. There's always the uh, the odd guy. But I think there's there's been an overwhelming amount of support and uh, overwhelming amount of um, uh, of positivity generated as a result. Uh, I, I, last year, I think, if I remember uh, it correctly, uh, over half a million yeah. pounds were raised by yeah. um, the Muslim community alone. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking big numbers here. Absolutely. Now, um, also, when it comes to this, the, the, the First World War, I think a lot of people don't realize how many... Um, it it wasn't something that was limited to to Europe. Um, there was a number of Muslims. Oh, correct me if I'm wrong. Was it three million? No, was it? Six, um, three or six, uh, three? You mean yeah? So, Muslim, so there soldiers. was there was a, I think more than a million yeah. um, soldiers from from India who were primarily um, of either Muslim or Sikh origin, some Hindus as well, of course, uh, took part in that war on behalf of the British Empire at that uh, at that time. So yeah, it was a global war. So on on that note, I think it's what what needs to be remembered is that you don't we don't necessarily only remember what happens, but I think what history, uh, when it comes to history, what spe- specifically in in today's day and age, when we spoke about what happened, what's happening in the world today across the globe, not just in one part of the world, but it's it's pretty much everywhere. All the conflicts, all the crises that we are facing, that we not only remember what happened, what led up to these things, but also to learn somewhat, to learn. Uh, a lesson so we don't repeat the same mistakes that again. And unfortunately, <clears throat> this is exactly what we're seeing. It starts with the rhetoric, and then all that needs to be done is is one 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 point at uh, which everything just 
goes crazy. Absolutely. And if you if you look at other wars, I mean, if you look at, for example, the Second World War, mm. uh, there were many um, things that happened uh, as a precursor to the war. Yeah. So there was... Um, uh, there was a crisis, um, the economic depression of the of nineteen twenty nine. There was um, uh, uh, there was economic um, uh, crises as a result of that. There was huge military buildup around mm-hmm. the world before the war. Um, so we, you know, these two. There was a there were civil wars. There was war, wars happening. So there was yeah. this famous Spanish civil war, which was happening for a long time before the Second World War um, started. So uh, I think we see all of those similarities again in, in a big way. So there, you know, there has been a pandemic. There has been a, a global economic crisis. Um, us and in, them in in this century, and then there's us and them. Yeah. The, the world it today is armed to its teeth. Yeah. And nobody can deny that. So, uh, yeah, there are huge similarities, and I think um, the sooner we heed the voice of um, uh, the, the the leader of the Amity Muslim community, may Allah his help, uh, the clipping of uh, one of his addresses, which yeah. we just played right now, the better. Our first guest for today is a semi-retired history teacher and a Quaker. Simon Kolbeck is with us in the line. Simon, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Simon, tell us a bit about yourself. First of all, um, okay. Well, I'm a, I'm a Quaker, um, uh, but I was um, actually born into a family with very strong uh, military traditions. My um, my dad was a soldier. Um, my mother actually was born in India under the Raj in the 1930s, and her father was a superintendent of police. Um, her brother was an army officer. So, but my dad actually um, quit his army career. Um, when I was about eight years old and, mm-hmm. and um, became a, a school teacher. He, instead, he, he kind of had a bit of a conversion of, of mind, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, soon after that, he got interested in Quakers. And he and my mother decided to send me to a Quaker school. Um, so that was a really important influence on me. Um, but I didn't actually become a Quaker myself, Um until my 30s when I started going to my local uh, Quaker meeting in, in Watford where I live and um, and then applied for, for membership. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, during the, um, I've, you know, I've, I've been a history teacher, I've been a social worker as well, but during the World War I centenary years, um, sort of starting in or leading up to and through 1914 to... Uh, sorry, 2014, of course, <laughs> to 20, uh, 2019, I was involved in um, various projects, kind of giving an alternative view uh, to what we were kind of getting in the in the on the television and in mm. uh, mag- magazine supplements and so on. You know, uh, um, that were perhaps uh, celebrating the sacrifice of. Yes. Um, war um we were trying to kind of draw attention to the um and remember that those who resisted the war yeah. not just quakers but many other pac- uh, pacifists no um, yeah looking at the legacy of that um, sure conflict yeah so i mean we know that world wars they they change the world but we're not just talking about the buildings we're not just talking about the infrastructure but we also talk about the people that inhabit this world so i want to ask you that what impact 
when it comes to the Great War. What impact did that have on not just the world, but also on on humanity at large? Yeah, well, I think the First World War, I mean, I wouldn't say it all started with the First World War, but certainly um, it, it has had a huge impact on the, you know, the century or more than a century since then. Um, because I, I guess... You know, at the outset of the First World War, there was a, certainly in the West, there was a huge kind of um, tide of, of optimism, a belief in progress, that scientific progress and, and reason was going to solve all the world's problems. Um, and of course, the First World War was a, a massive kind of kick in the teeth to all that. Um, and the, just the sheer, there was... I guess by the by the end of the war anyway there was worldwide revulsion and horror at the scale of the slaughter um that industrialized warfare that progress if you like had had created you know we we had the ability by the beginning of the 20th century to inflict far casualties far greater um casualties than than had ever been possible in war before and it became much more difficult to romanticize war when so many people, millions of people, had been traumatized, maimed, and bereaved, and killed, uh, so there was after the war. I'm talking about the impact of it, you know, there, there was this kind of collective uh, horror, revulsion, and the determination to that this was going to be the war to end war, that it was going to be never again, and that was the kind of collective promise of all the nations that have been involved in the war not not just the, the politicians but the people you know uh, and that was where remembrance started i think there was a much greater element in remembrance then and after the second world war because so many of us uh, um, british people european people but also indian people um who'd served Mm. Uh, and and uh, people from all over the world who'd served in the in the British Empire forces and the the, the um, forces of other European powers, um, they'd been directly affected. You know, they'd lost people. They 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 um, they 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 were left with life limiting injuries. Uh, and so we don't really we don't know that anymore. Okay, obviously you know people are. In Britain, I'm talking about, not many British people are dying in wars these days. Still, some, obviously. Um, but we don't have the same kind of emotional understanding of what it is like to to get over, to, to survive. So, a Simon, war. a war to end all wars. And mm. yet, at the end of the war, I mean, you talk about all the horrors of the war and all the lessons that everybody was supposed to have uh, learned <laughs> from that war. And yet, yes. then we um, then we arrive at the Treaty of Versailles, which actually was one of the reasons of the Second World War. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that that um, as a peace builder, peace builders, we have to try to draw attention to that actually um, the seeds of every war. We might feel that this particular war is justified, but if we look back the seeds of, of war are nearly always in the previous war and that's certainly true for the second world war um and you know where did where did things go wrong in terms of of, of how uh, the nations the leaders of the nations responded after the first world war and as you, as you say the treaty of versailles was very much a, 
a source of huge grievance for the um, for the German people who felt that they'd been, you know, there was this war guilt clause that blamed the German people mm. for Germany for starting the war, um, which you know nowadays when we look at it we don't really agree with that assessment, but that was that was the way people felt after the First World War. Germany had to be punished, um, and that created the conditions <coughs> in which. Um, you know, the Nazis were able to thrive, especially with, uh, well, they didn't actually thrive particularly. There was a, a very strong pacifist movement in Germany, but um, the, the Wall Street crash and the recession that um, was triggered by that, the depression that was triggered by that, uh, exactly. kind of had, a, had a big impact as well. So, Simon, I mean, they, you know, all this bloodshed, millions of, of, of people dead, millions wounded, uh, and yet that wasn't enough to quench the thirst or, or to uh, to subside the anger uh, in the Allies. Uh, how would you look back at the, at the Treaty of Versailles then? Uh, well, I think the Treaty of Versailles uh, was a, a, a treaty of, of vengeance to a large mm. extent. I mean, there were voices that were trying to modify that, Um uh, you know that the, the, the in fact the uh, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson um, had some more uh, kind of um, uh, conciliatory and constructive ideas about um, about how the peace settlement should be constructed. But um, in France and Britain, uh, in particular, there was quite a strong kind of feeling that. Um, it's difficult to gauge how how popular it was. This idea of make Germany pay. We've got to get our own back. We've got to make. We've got to. You know, we've been we've been devastated by this war. So we've got to we've got to extract as much as we can from our defeated enemy in order to compensate for what we've mm. for what we've been through. Um, it's difficult to know how much popular opinion really supported that because we didn't have like opinion polls in those days. But there was a very strong uh, peace movement in the 20s and even and in the 30s where actually millions of people signed a, a peace pledge. Um, in uh, I can't remember it was 1934 early <clears throat> early 1930s, um, saying that they personally would refuse to fight uh, for king and country. Um, but of course, events changed that yeah. um, it became apparent that you know as a result of the the way in which um, uh, mm. international relations had been handled the failure of the league of nations to stop some other conflicts gradually things kind of drifted towards so if i can draw an analogy from that simon so uh, you mentioned league of nations uh, failing united nations has failed or is failing as well to stop uh, wars uh, yeah i uh, wouldn't i wouldn't go as far as to say it has failed i mean the, the wait if, if i can you know maybe slightly disagree you know it has failed to stop the wars uh, in the last couple of decades has it not it has stopped failed to stop the war in syria stopped failed to stop the war in iraq two of them it has failed to stop the current war in ukraine well what, what is the united nations yeah. doing to uh, to stop that war so i can't uh, disagree i can't disagree with you yeah i mean it has failed to stop wars but i mean I know what you're saying. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. So yeah, and I, I, I and you know, at a semantic level, I can I can agree with uh, with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. But the point that I'm trying to make is, or, or the question I'm trying to ask is, so you know, the League of Nations was failing. United Nations is is failing, if not failed. Um, 
uh, there was a lot of anger at that time. Um, mm. There is still um, a lot of anger around um, now against Russia. Um, how yeah. how dangerous do you think this situation? Do you think we're we're probably going through our archduke moment here? <laughs> Uh, I don't think you can re- ever make direct comparisons with <laughs> sure. previous previous conflicts, but but we've we've got a situation where we haven't we haven't been able to resolve um, disagreements and conflicts um, through diplomacy uh, or through um, even necessarily through uh, through sanctions and other forms of pressure. Um, but I think you know the Russia conflict, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, is appears quite clear-cut. Appears as clear-cut, perhaps as the uh, as things did at the beginning, at the outset of the Second World War. But um, there are there are always times, opportunities, mm-hmm. um, in which a more uh, in which peace can be built upon and. We could, you know, we we can point at, uh, to the the end of the Soviet era, the collapse of communism, and the opportunity that perhaps existed then for a kind of scaling back, a more uh, in, in a, a more a different kind of engagement with the the the, the countries, the previous um, Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc countries that emerged from that time. Um, and I think there is a, you know, there's certainly a case for saying that a big opportunity was missed during the 1990s. You know, some people were questioning, do we still need NATO? Do we still need mm. to be spending such huge amounts on armaments and preparing for war? Mm. Uh, when the major re- raison d'etre for the existence of NATO is no longer there. Um, and, but I think there is a, there's a, a that's this idea of the military-industrial complex that was coined by um, by President uh, Eisenhower, I think, mm. in the 1950s, mm. um, whereby you know there there are so many powerful vested interests in maintaining yeah. um, the the arms industry and and um, uh, you know a, a, a state of hostile readiness for war um, that is very difficult to roll that back, and and I think the the the, the people who have vested interest, if you like, in in maintaining that after the end of the Cold War, um, were were kind of actively looking for um, looking for new enemies in a sense, you know, to justify the, the huge costs of, mm-hmm. of justify uh, their presence, yes. being poured into into um, into the military alliance. Uh, so I w- I wouldn't, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not justifying what, what has happened. Um, sure. In mm. uh, Ukraine, in any way at all, but. But there are always, you know, there are, there are always a, there's always a backstory to how these things happen. How how somebody like Putin is is able to, you know, draw on a sense of grievance, if you like, hmm. um, uh, in the in. The but Russian but equally, how, how how come the U.S. is able to spend around nine hundred billion dollars a year on defense, year in year out, um, and I'm, and this is not something over the last three decades. Yeah. Uh, when you know billions of people um, around us live in poverty, live under a dollar a day. Absolutely, and uh, and that uh, those conditions are, uh, you know, are, are sowing the seeds for for further conflict, a further war. You know, we look at uh, we look at the impact of climate change and how 
how that is as already contributing to the the conflicts that we're seeing in the world today. Um, the, it, it's uh, it's really important, I think, to to make those to make those kind of links. Yeah. <coughs> um, Simon, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh, great to talk to you. Simon Colbeck, semi-retired history teacher and a Quaker with us on the line. Thank you very much for your time, sir, once again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye now. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Don't forget, we're still asking you a question for the first half of the program. Which nations do you want to see um, or which countries should be leading the way in creating world peace. Now, our next guest for today, I think we can ask him about this topic as well as the first topic and then that question that we're asking you on Instagram as well. So go to Islam UK on Instagram, on our Instagram story is our next guest for today is uh, Brother Atik Ahmed Bhatti. He works very closely with the Royal British Legion branches in Slough and South Bucks for the annual Poppy Appeal and manages store collections in the town. He's also the Secretary Outreach for the Ahmadi Muslim community in Slough and a producer for Voice of Islam Radio. And what exactly he produces, he's going to tell us himself. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Draft Time Show, Brother Atik. Lovely to hear your very sweet and melodious <laughs> voice, as always. And... Um, I think you just threw me into the deep end. You know, I can't swim, right? <laughs> we all learn it. We all learn it. <laughs> yeah, the hard way. Yeah. The hard way. <laughs> so, Jazakla, first of all, um, Brother Atik, for, for joining us today. I want to you know, talk to you about the Poppy Appeal first, but after we come uh, to the Around the Table uh, program. Muslims in general do not get involved with the poppy appeal something that i spoke to brother daniel in the beginning as well i've encountered this myself where when our elders at the poppy appeal stall have been doing their duty have been selling poppies they've they've you know managed to catch a very few um not so pleasant comments i can say why is it that we as ahmadis do it though i think you know with the poppy um it seems to have this stigma associated with it that it's, uh, uh, you know, it's faith-based. Dare I say it? You know that it's uh, a Christian symbol, possibly, um, and it should only be Christians that are, you know, going to be raising money for the poppy appeal. But that's actually not the case. And um, if if we look at the poppy itself, um, and then I can go back to your original question uh, as to why do Ahmadis do this with guidance from His Holiness. Um, the poppy, it's not just a remembrance. Uh, it's certainly not a symbol, rather, should I say, for, for Christians. We must remember that, um, if I give you some context here, um, from, from 1914 to 18, you know, World War I took a huge uh, toll. Um, it, was a, it was one of the biggest conflicts known, and it created a lot of problems and a lot of death. Now, that great war, as it was known, ravaged the landscape of uh, Western Europe where most of the fiercest fighting actually took place. And from the devastated landscape of those, those battlefields, the red poppy would grow. And thanks to a famous uh, poem by um, Flan- called Flanders Field, it became a very powerful symbol of remembrance. So uh, across northern France uh, and Flanders, Flanders at that time and Belgium, the northern Belgium. Yeah. The, 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 sorry? Sorry? Okay, no, sorry, I thought you'd ask me a question. No, no, it was uh, Belgium. Yeah. I think that, that's that, that's yeah. where it grows, right? That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, you're better at geography than me. <laughs> um, the um, so you know, at this very sad time, um, the brutal clashes 
between the Allied and Central Powers uh, for taking their toll on the fields. But the poppy would grow in these fields. And, you know, there was a book also authored by somebody called Christmas now called The Book of the Poppy. And, you know, it was about this, this beautiful uh, flower that would grow. But, you know, when you look at it from, um, it, I mean, it's very poignant because where people were dying, where people were, you know, killing one another in this great war, um, you know, you'd find that there was still this glimmer of hope because of this poppy and this flower would flour- would flourish, you know. And this is where that symbol actually came uh, into being. Uh, there was a, um, I'm sure you know this, Lieutenant Colonel John McCree, McCree, a Canadian, and he served as a brigade surgeon for the Allied Artillery Unit. And he spotted this cluster of poppies, as history goes, hmm. uh, in, in spring. And, sh- and this was shortly after one of the, the battles. And McCray tended to the wounded. That was his role. And he got a first look, of course, hand, first look hand, uh, first hand look at the carnage of the war itself. And, um, you know, it was from there that this uh, poppy was worn as a symbol of remembrance. You know, it's, uh, it's not a religious symptom. Uh, it's not a religious symbol whatsoever, but it's more to do with the remembrance. And this goes back to the question that you actually asked me. Why do Muslims, for example, Ahmadi Muslims especially, get involved with the poppy appeal? The best possible answer I can give you to that is that with the blessings of Caliphate, um, His Holiness, our current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he's also the worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, with regards to uh, serving humanity, with regards to the uh, poppy appeal, has said um, that Muslims are obliged to be loyal to the country in which they live. Honoring those who fought to defend and safeguard one's country is an important principle of Islam, and in fact, an important principle of peace, especially when it is carried out with a sincere, sincere heart and for the sake of winning God's pleasure. So we are taught um, by His Holiness, and the Muslims are aware of the two basic principles of being a Muslim, um, and these are to recognize God and worship Him, and fulfill the rights due to him as our creator, and then to fulfill the rights owed to mankind, humankind, and to fulfill the rights owed to them, meaning to serve them, to help them, um, to have um, inter-social skills, to be able to engage with communities, to support communities. Um, and this also includes loyalty to one's country. So as a British Ahmadi Muslim, uh, just like yourself, um, we are loyal to the United Kingdom and this brilliant and fantastic and amazing country. We all have problems, I know, you know, at the moment with the cost of living crisis and everything. But when you look at it overall, this country has given us so much freedom. It's given every um, nation or every community that establishes themselves within the UK so much freedom. Hmm. So, you know, this in principle is, is why Ahmadis get involved with the poppy appeal, because not only are we loyal to the country, but we are grateful for those who sacrificed, and we're humbled, should I say, as well, very humbled indeed, who gave, you know, the ultimate sacrifice, and they gave their life to defend us, and today we are living in peace and harmony, are we not? Adik Sab, uh, uh, thank you very much for that. Firstly, uh, just just one uh, one thing to correct there. Um, so Raza Saab, Brother Raza, is not a British Ahmadi Muslim. I'm not, he's, I'm not. He's, a, he's a German Ahmadi Muslim. Um, but, <laughs> he's but, German. I thought, I thought he was... Uh, <laughs> 
I thought he was Canadian. Another bubble burst. <laughs> Oh, you learn something. Oh, you learn something new every day, I can, right? I can hear yeah. that disappointment yeah. in your voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but I but I am a British ambassador. Yeah, they're, they're, so yeah, you, you can address those comments too. Recently sworn in, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so how did Muslims contribute to the First World War? To the cause of the First World War? Well, I'll give you some um, interesting facts actually with mm. regards to the war itself. Um, you know, Muslims were involved, of course in the First World War, and at least, um, as far as historical records and figures go, and remember, these are just sort of averages, one can never give an exact, um, you know, uh, hmm. answer to the question, but approximately, you know, over 2.5 million Muslim soldiers and, and laborers, actually, from all over the world, fought with the Allied forces with dignity and honor. Um, and another example is that during World War One, for example, the British Indian Army numbered over 1.3 million and at least 400,000 were Muslims. Now, we must remember during World War I that uh, India was actually called Hindustan, which comprised of Sikhs, Hindus, and Muslims. So we refer, we refer that's why I'm referring it to as, uh, as India and the British Indian Army. But uh, 400,000 of those who fought to defend the world, actually, from, from total annihilation and disaster were Muslims um, from the British Indian Army, over 53,000, for example, were killed, 65,000 injured, and over, you know, just under 4,000 were missing. You know, these are these are large numbers. We're talking, you know, uh, many, many years ago. So these are very, very large figures for, for that time, you know. Um, and a significant number of Muslims also served in the British Merchant Navy. In fact, uh, over 50,000 by the beginning of uh, World War One, and they came from India, Yemen, uh, British, uh, Somaliland, and other countries. So, you know, this was the involvement of, of Muslims um, as soldiers in the defend, uh, defending, you know, mankind from this uh, this horrible, horrible war that was encountered. So looking back at this, um, at this great war, um, <clears throat> and all the, uh, for all the destruction that it caused and uh, the, the havoc that it created in the world, how significant would you say the words of the uh, the prophecy of the promised Messiah, uh, which he made back in April 1905, about the Great War were? His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the promised Messiah um, and founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, actually um, had a revelation about the war, which was published extensively at that time. Um, and he actually... Um, the revelation pointed to three wars, including World War II, and he declared that it would overtake the world suddenly. The world would be shocked. Travelers would be faced with great trouble. Rivers would turn red with blood, and the young would be shocked with uh, senility. Mountains would explode, and so forth. And His Holiness, he declared that it would overtake the world very suddenly. And sadly, this is um, you know, what came to be. And from the research that has been done, it certainly points, because of the various revelations within the prophecy itself about the First World War, um, it uh, is only sensible to uh, come to the conclusion that it pointed to this, you know, the, the First World War itself. Um, this is actually explained in detail by the Third Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in a book called A Message of Peace and a, and a Word of Warning. But... Um, 
you know, this uh, prophecy mentioned a calamity resembling doomsday. Um, it mentions so many other things as well, which I've just uh, mentioned here. So, you know, this, this was the prophecy in a nutshell. Uh, it's obviously far larger, and I would say those interested should visit uh, alislam.org. I'm sure you can share some links later as well where people can sort of um, read up on the, on the history of this and the revelation and how it came into being. And I think finally, where, where do you think we are at the moment um, in terms of, uh, you know, if you begin to draw some analogies between the situation before the First and the Second World War, uh, there seems to be quite a few uh, uh, similarities between the circumstances before the Second World War and uh, and what we see in the world now. So how dangerous do you think uh, is the world situation at the moment? And, you know, what lessons can we draw from from the uh, precursor, the, the events which, which led to those uh, first uh, two wars? You know, it's a really, that's a very deep question. Um, personally, my personal opinion is that, you know, I think about it all the time because I am, worried um, mm. I'm fearful that if God forbid you know this uh, the wars the small wars and they're going about everywhere and of course the Russia Ukraine war is taking place and has been for a good um, 11 months is it now 10 months or so um, you know God forbid if it you know goes into uh, a nuclear war it will be devastating for humanity and in fact I refer back to his holiness who over the last several years, specifically has been speaking about dark clouds on the horizon mm. and that if people, the leaders of government, uh, you know, politicians and those who have clout, if they do not exercise justice, then, you know, ultimately we're, we're going to head, well, we, we're seeing some of it, aren't we? We're, we're going heading towards a very terrible catastrophe. Personally, that, of course, that worries me because um, in the words of His Holiness, do we want our children to praise us? for what we left behind, or do mm. we want our children to curse us for what we didn't leave and what we destroyed, you know? So, um, in answer to your question, certainly I think it's a very critical, critical time, more than it's ever been. Um, just the slightest mistake by any nation, um, mm. for example, in the current Ukraine and Russia war, can co- cause unimaginable mm. suffering, and it will be a catalyst, one one will lead to something bigger and bigger and mm. bigger, and then, if, God forbid, may God help us all, but there'll be nothing left, you see. So people need to yeah. understand, people yeah. need to realize, this is not the way. This is certainly not the way, you know. This, uh, mm. I, I just don't understand why people are so... Uh, where are the egos coming from? You know, where is the injustice coming from? At the end of the day, we're brothers and sisters. We have a duty to safeguard ourselves because God has given us life. Hmm. It's we're, we're custodians, if I say it in such a way, of our of ourselves. So if we cannot protect ourselves and others around us, then uh, you know it's it's not looking that good, then, is it? Exactly. We have to sit and talk, as as we've been talking about uh, for the last couple of hours. Uh, Atikya Mabhati, thank you so very much for joining us. It was uh, really a pleasure. Pleasure to you, and uh, I would also say my salam to Raza again. Jazakallah. Uh, the, <laughs> our, our German Ahmadi friend. Yes, a German Ahmadi friend. Currently Absolutely. residing I, in I'm, I'm the glad UK you. and loving it here. Jazakallah. Jazakallah. With that, we're going to go to our next guest right away with us on the line. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are joined by uh, Simon Hill.
Simon is from uh, the campaigns manager of the Peace Pledge Union and a history tutor for the Workers' Educational Association. Simon, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Uh, good afternoon, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. Thank you for joining us today. Now, uh, the Peace Pledge Union, for those of our listeners who are not aware of uh, uh, your organization, what is it that you do? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, uh, it goes back to the years after the First World War, when uh, increasingly people were seeing the need to uh, work for peace and getting frustrated with the idea of trying to lobby governments to... Uh, change policies and and, um, and and reject war. And it goes back to the idea that really war is only possible if people go along with it. War is only possible if we all agree to fight, if we all agree to pay for it, etc. So um, uh, around that time, there was the idea that people should sign a peace pledge, which would mean that they said they wouldn't take part in war, mm-hmm. and instead they'd work against the causes of war. Um, so the Peace Pledge Union is a union of people who've pledged to resist war and to work against its causes. And we're the British section of War Resisters International. So all around the world, there are similar organizations uh, where people have made similar uh, commitments um, in, in you know, Russia, Ukraine, um, South Sudan, Israel, Colombia, Palestine. Uh, we have uh, equivalent organizations around the world. And it's it's a real privilege to be part of that. But the, the PPU works in the UK, uh, so our members are pacifists, but we, we happily work alongside other people who don't may not agree with us on everything, hmm. but who share some of our uh, views. We work on shared campaigns about issues such as arms exports, militarism, nuclear weapons, etc. Okay. And now... Y- Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you were a white poppy, isn't it? Yes. So tell us a a little bit about that. Why a white poppy? Is this a recent uh, invention? And uh, if not, how long has this been around? Because I'm sure not a lot of people are aware of that. And usually in these days, you don't see many wearing a white poppy. Well, it's not a recent invention. It's been around 89 years. So Mm -hmm. um, we'll be marking the 90th anniversary next year. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, after World War I, many people began to wear red poppies to remember the the dead. And that was associated with the the principle of never again, that we'd work for... uh, We we would honour those who died in the horrors of World War I by working to uh, prevent war in the future. But gradually, it started to drift away from that. And while many people wearing red poppies still kept to that principle and still do, uh, it began to be more and more associated with solely remembering the British military dead. And and, uh, in the early 1930s, the the Women's Cooperative Guild, a group of women who supported the cooperative movement, um, launched a white poppy. And um, Eleanor Barton, who was their secretary, said, uh, we're re... Uh, recommitting to the the never again message that that we seem to have been drifting from. So uh, today the Peace Pledge Union is responsible for distributing white poppies and they stand for remembrance. They're not just a peace symbol, they're a symbol of remembrance for all victims of war, military, civilian, conscientious objectors, all nationalities, you know, 
whatever, however somebody has suffered in war, whatever country they happen to have found themselves in, the white poppy recognises the enormous scope of that suffering. And it also says the way we commemorate these people is by committing to peace, recognising the horrors of war, not not glamorizing it or sanitizing it and committing to work for peace so it's a symbol of remembrance and a symbol of a commitment to peace that grows out of that desire to remember the victims of war and to learn from the horrors of war why are the white poppy wearers criticized um sometimes there's uh there's a lot of um uh, uh a lot of misunderstanding. So sometimes people think a white poppy is a protest against remembrance, and mm. it, it, it's certainly not. It's a symbol of remembrance. Um, or some people think it's an insult to the British Armed Forces personnel. And again, it is to remember all victims of war, and that includes British Armed Forces personnel. Um, sadly, however, we do get um, not just criticism, but sometimes abuse and abusive mm. messages on social media and so on from people who think we shouldn't be remembering anyone who isn't British or people who insist that every war fought by Britain has been fought for freedom and democracy um, and who object to any commitment to peace. And, you know, that's that's a real shame because mm. I absolutely want to remember British Armed Forces personnel as much as anyone else. You know, my great-grandfather fought in the Battle of the Somme but right. if he'd been born in Berlin instead of Birmingham, he'd have fought on the other side of the Battle mm, of the Stone. Mm, and everybody mm. knows that. It's, you know, where mm. you end up in war is often a matter of luck. Mm. And if we're really going to learn from the past, if we're really going to mm. move on from war, we have to, we have to recognize that, that suffering doesn't stop at borders. And also to your point, uh, I mean, we know for a fact now that the Iraq war, for example, wasn't uh, fought for, for any democratic reasons. Uh, of course. You know, there, there were other reasons for it. So, yeah, I, I, I totally hear you. So uh, <clears throat> can you tell us where do the proceeds of the poppies that you sell go? Well, I mean, we're, it, it's a relatively small scale operation, so the proceeds are relatively small. But what uh, what we do make goes to fund educational resources on peace and conflict. So we produce resources for schools that help young people to uh, explore issues of peace, explore how to resolve conflict without violence, even if that's just within their own, um, you know, amongst their own friends and families. Um, and the money also helps to fund our campaigns uh, against war and to promote peace. Um, and, you know, many white poppy wearers also give to charities supporting victims of war and veterans. But ultimately, we think it's it's outrageous that veterans who, who, who've suffered in wars should be left to rely on charity. You know, the government pours billions of pounds into wars. And when people come back broken um, from from having fought in those wars, they're, they're dumped to rely on charity. And we don't think you know, I'm not saying we should, people shouldn't give to those charities. Of course, um, you know, charity can do can do good things, but they they shouldn't have to rely on charity. And and uh, finally, Simon, we 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 live in a in very tricky times. Uh, there are wars happening around us. How significant do you think? How important do you think it is in times like these to remember the war which happened uh, more than a hundred years ago? I, I, I think it's. I think it's absolutely vital because if we don't remember the past, we're we're condemned to repeat it. Right. And you get all these simplistic messages of war, the idea that 
you know, every war that Britain fought was, was, was a fight for freedom. I mean, we could argue mm. about the justifications for sure. this war or that war or any other war, right. but the, the very simplistic idea that all British troops ever do is fight for freedom mm. is, you know, apart from anything else, it's insulting to the British troops who've died. You know, often sure. young lads and young women who've been, uh, you know, told a series of lies and said mm. to go and fight other young and poor people elsewhere in the world. And, you know, that's not remembrance. That's that's forgetting. That's sanitizing the mm. past. That's not mm. remembrance. It's just forgetting. And remembering means uh, learning from the past. Mm. And you know, as a as a historian, I think if we don't if we don't learn from the past, we'll keep repeating it. If we don't learn the mistakes of Iraq, um, you mm. know, we'll do it again. And the when it comes to something like the First World War, that that message of never again was so important after world war one but mm. there were some people who had a had an interest in um in in not emphasizing that you know grandstanding politicians arms dealers people who can profit f- from war and and you know we saw where that went world war one the the treaty at the end laid the the groundwork for world war two at the end of world war two laid the groundwork for the cold war and uh, and so on so i think you know, the very, very last thing I would ever say is that I am against remembrance. I am so much in favour of remembrance. And remembrance means remembering and recognising the, the, the horrible realities of war and learning and learning from it and doing things differently. Humans created war. Humans can end war. If we can send people to the moon, if we can build computers and cars and send messages spinning around the globe in a matter of seconds, surely we can end war. Do you think we're doing enough of that? I don't... Um, I don't think we are doing that at all. Mm. I think at the moment, here in the UK, the UK has the fourth highest military budget in the world, mm. um, and the Defence Secretary is committed to increasing it despite the cost of living crisis. Who are the top three, it, do you know? Um, uh, the US is definitely first. <laughs> and then uh, I... Uh, oh, I, China, I think he's I think it's China. And I have to... Yeah. Uh, Russia is fifth. Russia's just behind the UK. Yeah, exactly. Um, I forget who's third off the top of yeah. my head. And, and yet they are the aggressors and they are the bad guys. And uh, well, know. it's um, you know when it comes to Ukraine, for example, I'm not I'm not condemning somebody in Ukraine for mm. for picking up a weapon in a desperate situation I haven't faced. But when NATO are going in for their own interests, when mm. British arms companies are selling weapons to Ukraine while also selling them to Saudi Arabia to, to, mm. to bomb Yemen or, or, or Israel occupying the Palestinian territories. Um, you know, we've got a situation, uh, my, my friend Yuri, who's a, who, who lives in Kiev, um, you know, says we, we have a situation where, um, you know, both sides are, are profiting from it or in it for their own interests. And it's the people of Ukraine who suffer and only, exactly. only real negotiations are going to to end this. Um, are going yeah. to change that situation. Absolutely. Thank you very much uh, for those wise words. Uh, can I just can yeah. I just mention for for those of your listeners who are interested, we do have there's a number of white poppy related events on on Sunday for Remembrance Sunday. Right. The uh, the national alternative Remembrance Sunday ceremony uh, will be at noon in Tavistock Square in London. And for people who can't get there in person, it'll be online. And we will hear from Russian and Ukrainian peace activists. Um, as well as others with experience of uh, of war, and that will be a very um, meaningful occasion, I think, as we as we lay wreaths of white poppies and hold two minutes silence for for all victims of war. So, if you look up ppu.org.uk, there's more details there. Simon, thank you very much for your time. As thank always, you very great much. to talk to you. Thank you, thank you so much.
<clears throat> Coming to the end of today's program, I want to finish with uh, some words of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed that he uttered in the New Zealand uh, Parliament in 2013. He said, "As the head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, it is my duty that I should draw the attention of the world towards establishing peace." <clears throat> Excuse me. I consider this my obligation because Islam's very meaning is peace and security. If certain Muslim countries carry out or promote hateful acts of extremism, it should not lead to the conclusion that Islamic teachings promote disorder or strife. I have just quoted a verse of the Holy Quran and within it, it is a lesson of how to establish peace. Furthermore, the founder of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, taught his followers to always give salam, meaning to always spread the message of peace. We know from his blessed example that he would invoke peace to all non-Muslims, be they Jews, Christians, or the people of any other faiths or belief. He did so because he understood that all people formed part of God's creation. With that, we're going to say thank you to um, all of you for listening in today. Thank you very much to our researchers and producers. And don't forget, tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, life is going to be with you at 10 a.m. And the Weekend World team is going to join you at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning. Drive Time is going to be back with you, same time, same channel, on Monday, inshallah, at 4 p.m. From all of us here, assalamu alaikum.